The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Until a few years ago, Hollywood dominated Chinese cinemas. In the People's Republic, Marvel's superhero romps were the people's favourite, with Avengers Endgame taking in over £500 million at Chinese box offices. In China, Hollywood has identified a golden goose. After all, it's a country with a fifth of the world's population and a growing middle class. But there's just one problem, the small issue of the Chinese Communist Party, which tightly controls the films people can see. After the success of Avengers Endgame, Marvel films had effectively been blacklisted until earlier this year, with other Hollywood blockbusters also failing to get permission from Beijing to be shown in China. On this episode, we'll be talking about that love-hate affair between Beijing and LA. I'm joined by Eric Schwartzel, who is the Hollywood reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and his recent book is all about this, called Red Carpet. And Chris Berry, Professor of Film Studies at King's College London. You might remember him from our previous episode discussing the golden age of Chinese films. If not, the link is in the description. Chris and Eric, welcome to Chinese Whispers. So Eric, perhaps you can start by giving us some idea of the Chinese film market and just why Hollywood is so interested in it. Well, it's been changing quite a bit, but I think the first thing to understand is that while we think of Hollywood movies as this kind of global medium that spent much of the 20th century sweeping the globe, for much of that time, Chinese audiences were turned off to most American entertainment. It wasn't until the 1990s that Hollywood studios started shipping their films to China in earnest. And, and I would say it wasn't even until maybe about 15 or 20 years after that, that it became a noticeable revenue source for a lot of the major studios. So starting around 2010, 2011, Hollywood started to kind of wake up a little bit to the, to the size of the market that was forming in China. And then starting in 2012, the access really opened up. And you entered a decade or so, roughly a decade, where Essentially, every major Hollywood, what we call tentpole movie, so the big budget films that cost $200, $220 million to make, were basically being produced, marketed, and distributed with the intention of also playing in China. And you can imagine, for studios, this was a bit of a miracle because it's not often that you find a new market kind of sitting there ready to exploit. And here was a country of more than a billion people embracing Hollywood films. And and the films that they were embracing were, were many of the kinds of movies that American audiences have come to embrace, right? The superhero movies, the big budget franchise titles, the Fast and the Furious, the Avengers, those kinds of films were the ones that were really hitting in China. And it wasn't until I'd say relatively recently, maybe the past five or six years or so, that Chinese films really started to mount a real competitive threat to those Hollywood releases. And we started to see Chinese audiences really start to gravitate more toward domestic productions than the foreign imports that Hollywood studios had been shipping over. 
And Chris, the market is not only large, but there's also a massive potential for it to grow, isn't there, compared to, let's say, Hollywood? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look at the statistics and the data, at least the US market, which of course is only about half of Hollywood's market, the US market has been pretty flat. It's been still the largest in the world, but it hasn't been growing particularly. In contrast, the Chinese market up until COVID was absolutely booming so that it was doubling and tripling every couple of years. And also it was closely tied to the real estate boom and the boom in movement to the cities. So as more and more people were moving into the cities, Mm -hmm. there were more and more developments that would be around a huge shopping mall and the shopping mall would have a multiplex on top of it. So China was also adding more and more movie screens. At the same time, more and more people are becoming middle class. So I think there are different estimates, but the Chinese middle class population is certainly the same as the whole population of the United States, probably larger. And therefore, it's now a very lucrative market, as Eric was saying. And so we see a situation where we're waiting to see what's going to happen now that COVID is over. But quite possibly, if it returns to that pattern, the Chinese market will become the largest market in the world in value very, very quickly indeed. As I mentioned, Hollywood still gets a lot of its income outside the US market. But nonetheless, everyone wants into a market that's growing Mm. and a market that is so valuable. And Eric, it's not just what happens on our screens when it comes to these films, is it? Because there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes, literally speaking, when it comes to collaborations, let's say, on production. Right. This is interesting. I mean, I think Chris's point about how the U.S. market has been flat is important to keep in mind, right? It it doesn't take a a business genius to see where the growth is and where you should be orienting your priorities. But when it came to Hollywood's move into China, the more unexpected, I'd say, source of revenue came from that production financing side, where there were several years there, I'd say starting around 2014 to maybe 2017 or so, when uh, a lot of money was flowing into Los Angeles from China to either acquire production companies, invest in individual productions, as you said, kind of finance the behind the scenes element of movie making and not just look to China as a source for ticket sale revenue, as they had done. That has significantly dried up because Xi Jinping himself has really cracked down on that kind of outbound investment, as they call it. That has really dried up, and it's actually broken quite a few hearts here in Los Angeles, I think. There were a number of people here who thought they were going to see some massive Chinese paydays before Beijing had other thoughts. But I would say it's not just, though, ticket sales that the studios are relying on now, because When we talk about the major Hollywood studios, we're talking about really just basically five companies. And they're all part of these much larger conglomerates that are housing multiple brands, multiple revenue streams, multiple kinds of businesses. So the best example of this is the Walt Disney Company, which releases most of its movies in China because they're all, you know, family friendly and pretty easily passed by censorship. And they make a lot of money in those theaters when their movies do get in. But they also have a theme park in Shanghai. They have a theme park in Hong Kong. They're selling toys. 
to Chinese kids. You know, at one point they were even selling English lessons to Chinese parents. <laughs> um, there are all these other ancillary businesses that they can get into in China. And I would say whenever people talk about the Chinese box office market not being as reliable as it once was, I'd say, well, you know, these companies still at a root level, though, have to worry about maintaining that market access because there are a lot of other ways that they're making money in this country. Mm, that's really interesting. And let's talk about that censorship then, Chris. It's something that you and I have talked about on this podcast before, but in the context of Chinese films, films created by Chinese directors with Chinese cast and that sort of stuff. So how does the Film Administration Bureau deal with foreign films when it comes to treading that political line? I think they are particularly concerned about a number of things. Some of them are political, you know, too many Statues of Liberty or whatever, and they want those cut out. <gasps> But a lot of them are to do with the fact that China's classification system is a simple pass or not pass one, basically. If it passes, a five-year-old child can see it. So there's always an anxiety about the kinds of things that make it into, you know, categories of 15 plus, 16 plus here and would be considered you know, too risque or maybe too much violence as well sometimes. Although I must say I'm always quite surprised how much violence is thought to be fine for five-year-old children in China to watch. So those are the kinds of things that they will be concerned about. They will, of course, be anxious about anything that could be perceived as derogatory towards China or Chinese people or anything like that. I think the other thing that I'm not so sure about, maybe Eric can enlighten us on this, is the mechanisms, because obviously they have to go through the China Film Administration or the Film Bureau, as it's also known, in the same way as any other movie. But I imagine that a lot of those Hollywood studios that are thinking of investing huge amounts of money are trying, at least on an informal level, mm. to maintain avenues into the Film Administration to say, well, you know, we're thinking about making this film and we're, we're hoping it's going to be one of the 34 big films that you allow in every year. Does this sort of topic look all right? Are there any particular concerns? But I don't know the, I don't have any inside stories on that. Mm. Well, Eric, keen to hear your thoughts on that. And also recently it was reported that the former Disney CEO had met the then ambassador from China to Washington, Qinggang, uh, so clearly doing a little bit of private kind of lobbying, but the stateside. That's right. And I think you're absolutely right that there is a real lobbying campaign that starts in some cases months before a movie will come out. The Film Bureau and, and the censors, you know, I actually, whenever I would ask people about this, I thought that maybe being a, a film censor might be kind of a fun job. You get to see all of the movies and watch movies all day. But it's I, I'm told, it, you know, for a lot of people, it, it can seem like quite a bore because think about it, you do have to also watch every movie. So <laughs> I mean, you may not be able to be that discerning. But you're right, Chris, that the campaign can start in earnest months before a movie is released. There's kind of a buzz building that can happen. If there's a release coming that a studio really has basically greenlit on the expectation that it will have release in China and make money in China, it's very common for distribution executives to go to Beijing and say, look, this is what we're releasing next year. This is let's get you excited about these upcoming titles. Now, things like preliminary script approval, that is really only entering the conversation if they're trying to film in China. And that's when the authorities will exercise their right to approve any script that's going to take place in China. Now, the censorship process itself is, as you can imagine, pretty opaque. You ship the movie over and it's screened for a group, I'm told, of somewhere between like eight and 12 people 
ranging from CCP bureaucrats to film studies professors. As Chris said, it's a pass-fail system. And sometimes if you have you know, a significant presence in Beijing, you can kind of back channel to figure out why a movie was rejected. But a lot of times these studios just have to guess and, you know, in some cases have to bend over backwards and frankly embarrass themselves trying to figure out what it was that offended the authorities. Can you give us some examples of that, Eric? Because you've got some great ones in your book. The one example that comes to mind was with the Warner Brothers movie It, the Stephen King adaptation that came out several years ago. Now, I think on the surface, this is a bizarre movie to try to get into China at all because it is so, it's very R-rated, sort of like very gory movie, the kind of movie that you think maybe just on paper would be rejected outright. And yet, nonetheless, they were trying to get it in and they sent it over and it was rejected. So then they reduced the gore. They kind of, they shaved back some of that and, and tempered that. It was still rejected. And then they thought to themselves that maybe the killer clown that is it, maybe because he was sort of this ghostly apparition, that that would kind of set off tripwires among censors who were very skeptical of such kind of spiritual themes. And so they actually added a prologue of text to the movie explaining that this killer clown was actually an alien from outer space. So they changed the origin of the title character, this like Stephen King's like iconic character, they changed the origin and, and tried to explain it away by saying he was an alien. And yet, nonetheless, it still didn't get accepted into Chinese theaters. I think I ultimately had tried three times to do it. Of course, that's um, highly unscientific, an alien from outer space. So they wouldn't like that any more than they would like a ghost. It's the same problem. You're absolutely right. But I guess, I mean, also, if you're sitting there in the China office of Warner Brothers, maybe you're thinking to yourself, look, on the 5% chance this gets in and we net 20 million out of the country, it's found money, really. Mm-hmm. And Chris, sometimes these censors can also be quite sexually prudish, can't they, when it comes to especially LGBT themes? Is that one of the reasons why Everything Everywhere All at Once, which had such a great night at the Oscars recently and was really followed on Chinese social media because of its Asian American portrayals, yet even so, that film wasn't allowed to be shown in China? Yeah, as far as we know, Lesbian Daughter is a no no. Um, Multiverse is. Possibly okay. Multiverse, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, sci-fi, that's a whole other interesting thing, but sci-fi used to be a big problem in China because it was seen as not realistic. Now sci-fi, if, if it's within the bounds of imaginable futures, okay, they will accept it. But LGBTQ is definitely a problem. So when they had the Freddie Mercury movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, is that what it was called? I'm trying to remember. Um, yep. All the gay stuff in it was cut out. Anything to do with sexuality is a problem, never mind LGBTQ. So I remember back in the 90s when I think one of the first films to come in from Hollywood on these big film deals was Bridges of Madison County. And as far as I recall, there is a scene in it in which Meryl Streep is in a huge bathtub with whoever her boyfriend in the film is. And this was considered unbelievably <laughs> risque that this was released in China. So yes, anything like anything like that is a problem. Yeah. God, I've got this mental image of these kind of middle-aged, later middle-aged <laughs> Chinese bureaucrats being like, ooh. <laughs> I think the other thing we need to add is that with the censorship process, as well as the regular teams of people, there are a lot of them actually, and they when your movie comes in, you don't know who you're going to get, right? There's a pool of several, maybe tens, maybe even hundreds of censors. Mm. And so you don't know, are you going to get the ultra conservatives or are you going to get somebody who's half asleep and drops off in the middle of a movie and doesn't really care? But what they are concerned about is 
if there are scenes that are of what they would consider to be a sensitive nature, so, for example, anything that has anything to do with Tibet, Mongolia, borderlands, etc., etc., religion, they will have specialist censors. And so they will call those people in and they will, that's where you start getting the really heavy attention. So the question comes up for Hollywood, whether they're prepared to censor themselves, cut scenes out and so on. For a long time they have, but at the same time, increasingly they're facing criticism within the US about that, I think. We will get on to that. But Eric, just on your previous point about how Hollywood is trying to angle themselves for the Chinese market, what about also creating scripts for the Chinese market in the sense that this live-action Mulan film that came out in the last few years does seem to have really had the Chinese market in mind, um, getting a Chinese cast, going to Xinjiang to film, but that didn't work out very well for Hollywood, did it? Oh, but no, it was a disaster and an ironic one, too, because you're absolutely right. There's no world where that live action Mulan isn't put into production with absolute fantasies of blockbuster returns in China coming from it. And I'd say, you know, around 2013 to 2015 or so was what I think of as like the really heady time in Los Angeles when there was so much enthusiasm about this new market in China that studios, I mean, talk about embarrassing themselves, were really bending over backwards to appeal to Chinese audiences and doing very ham-handed things like casting Chinese actors in very small roles or, you know, saying, actually, the script that takes place in Dublin, could it take place in Shanghai? <laughs> you know, like, And just basically trying to reverse engineer that kind of appeal. And I think it was actually quite insulting to Chinese audiences who saw through the pandering quite quickly. And, oh, and, and there was that weird uh, film, The Great Wall. Is it Ben Affleck who was in that? F- awful that was, it, no, it was his, his, his friend Matt Damon, Matt Damon who was in that. Yeah. And The Great Wall was supposed to be kind of the ultimate marriage of the two filmmaking cultures because it was a formal co-production, meaning it was it supposedly equal parts Chinese and American filmmaking. And that co-production status would have allowed the American studio to get more money out of the market, too. But then that started to fade as Chinese audiences really turned on to just how blatant the kind of manipulation was. But the live action Mulan came out at a a terrible time for a number of reasons. It was early 2020. So I think it was one of the last premieres held in Los Angeles before COVID-19 shut everything down. It, as you said, filmed in Xinjiang. And when that was reported and revealed, that drew fierce criticism from, to Chris's point, politicians on both sides of the aisle, pointing out that Disney was basically laundering China's human rights reputation for them. And then at at the same time, I'd say on a taste level, it just seemed like it came too late for Chinese audiences too. I think there was probably a perception in within Disney walls that Chinese audiences were going to just absolutely love seeing such a big budget treatment of their mythology. But by the time it came out in 2020, Chinese audiences had grown quite accustomed to seeing their own filmmakers, their own movie stars, their own stories on screen. And suddenly they didn't need an American studio producing a version for them. You know, I've always said, you know, would we expect American audiences to go see a Chinese version of Tom Sawyer? You know, it, it was it was that sort of 
bizarre. And, and so then you throw the political problems on top of it. And it was just it had the makings of a disaster and it didn't work in either country. Yeah. And Chris, I've also come across this thing called a film quota, which is just however many films from outside China get approved inside China. I, what I didn't understand about it was, is that quota just like a number of films that do pass or is it like a predetermined number that's set, let's say, at the beginning of each year? Right. Until the 1990s, the China film government company that had the monopoly on importing and pretty much still does have it, China Film Corporation, my old employers, quick plug for them, they used to have to find the hard currency to buy any foreign film outright that they wanted. And it was always a struggle to find enough money to buy a big Hollywood movie. But following a deal in the 1990s, the Chinese government began to agree that a, a, a certain number could come in every year on what's called a box office split. In other words, no money up front, but you make a deal and you say, well, we, you know, China Film Corporation will keep 60% and 40% will go to Hollywood or whatever. I think at that time it was 10 per year. It's now gone up to 34. Mm-hmm. As Eric was already indicating, if you're doing a real co-production, that's outside the 34, that's in addition to the 34. And potentially the China Film Corporation or any other company, there's one or two others now that have the right to import. If they want to put together the cash, they can also outright buy the rights to bring in additional films if they want to. Although, frankly, I don't see why they would do that because it's a risk they don't need to make. And Eric, we've mentioned COVID in the last few years, obviously it's been very difficult for the Chinese film industry, mainly because of zero COVID. But has it also been difficult in terms of Hollywood's access to China because, you know, the government seems to have become much more restrictive in what makes it uh, makes a pass? It's been a disaster. And I think the thing that I learned researching this topic was just how much of a political weather vane the movie's can be in China. It's no coincidence that when China is deepening ties with certain countries that you see movies from those countries being released in Chinese theaters. And the inverse is true too. When Chinese officials are not happy with American officials, American studios suffer. And again, it makes sense if you're sitting in that screening room in Beijing and you know that China-U.S. relations are not at a high point. Do you really want to be the bureaucrat who says, yeah, let's let this American movie in? And so leading up to the party Congress last year, studios were seeing one movie after another rejected or not even not even being told one way or another if the movie was allowed to be shown. And so, for instance, Disney's Marvel Studios, which had had arguably the best record of sales in China since the country opened up saw, I think, six movies, one after another, not shown in China, really for the first time since they started screening there. And there were a number of reasons. I think zero COVID was part of it, and they wanted to make sure that they were clearing the market for their domestic productions. But I know that that politics were were an element as well. Now, as we talk today in late March, there's been this kind of twist where one title after another is being approved for release. And I have to imagine that part of it is trying to use the ticket sales from American movies to help re-energize Chinese theaters, right? I mean, there is certainly an economic consideration here. As Chris said, you know, a lot of these theaters are tied to malls and larger real estate holdings that need that foot traffic, right? So if you can 
get a lot of foot traffic because people want to go see a Fast and Furious movie, you're going to start screening a Fast and Furious movie. But I also think that part of it is just that spigot of Western influence that Chinese leaders like to control, right? And they tighten at times of um, political sensitivity and they loosen at other times. I think it's just been loosened a little bit because Xi Jinping is through his party Congress and things have tempered a little bit. But really, we had about a year and a half there where I think a lot of executives in Hollywood realized that for as quickly as the China market opened up, it can just as quickly shut down. Mm-hmm. And I, I do remember, you know, when China was opening back up over this winter, going to see the new Avatar seemed to be on everyone's to-do list as soon as they were freed or had been infected and recovered. Chris, is economics the reason why you think that there's a bit of thawing at the moment? I think everything Eric said is absolutely accurate. I would add a couple of other things that are more speculative in a way. And one is that I would say the Chinese government, especially under Xi Jinping, and the Communist Party presents to the outside world a total image of unanimity. You know, all those ranks of little Xi Jinping mini-me's with their dyed hair in their suits in the National People's Congress and so on. But in reality, the Chinese Communist Party is in a state of permanent faction dispute. You know, there's permanent warfare inside the party. Because when you don't have a multi-party system, that's what happens, right? All the disputes are behind the scenes. So I would say that there probably is also a factor of tightening and loosening related to some of those political fortunes. And my feeling is that when, much to the regime's shock, all those people appeared on the streets demanding the end of zero COVID, suddenly the Chinese government felt we can't take them for granted. So I think... People have been dissatisfied about not being able to see Hollywood films. Mm -hmm. And I think probably this is something you can do without much political risk, right, is let a few more of those films in again. So that may also be part of the story. But, you know where it's going to go is very difficult to predict, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we touched on at the beginning of the discussion, but which is just that Chinese films are getting better and better, but a lot of Chinese people still just really, really like American films and international films. That soft power is incredible. I remember growing up and Harry Potter was all the rage. And yeah, I mean, as good as Wolf Warrior or the battle at Lake Changjing Mm. or whatever it is, is you want to see your Marvel films as well. And Chris, some have reported that it's also to do with this new head of the Film Administration Bureau. Do you think it's got anything to do with that? Like a slightly less kind of loyalist person, a bit more in touching with the film industry? It it might be, but I I really don't know about that. And Eric, is this also why Netflix and other streaming services from the West haven't managed to take off? Just this political environment is so difficult to navigate. I guess it's a political environment by one definition. It's more that Chinese authorities have made it abundantly clear that they are not going to let streaming competitors into the country. Several years ago, when Netflix started to try to break into the Chinese market, authorities in Beijing told them, you can sort of give up now because they have so many robust, homegrown domestic streaming services that they want to see succeed, and they don't want to let in that foreign competition. So it's, the, it's exactly the kind of closed market that I think frustrates a lot of American businesses, Western businesses, and a lot of Western politicians. It has given, I think, Netflix in particular, a little bit of a longer leash when it comes to thinking about what kind of content 
it produces and what kind of content it distributes. But it's clear that it seems like unless there's a sudden change on the horizon, that a lot of the streaming services that are really defining the priorities of studios today, whether it's Disney Plus or Netflix or HBO Max, a lot of those are operating in a world where China, Chinese access can't really be a consideration. Mm-hmm. And just finally then, Eric, because you mentioned this warming up of relations, but studio executives over the last few years have realized how quickly the market can shut down when the political will is there. Where does it go from here? Because that's a hard lesson to learn, but obviously the character of the Chinese market has been dangled once again. At the same time, the political environment in the US has become much more fierce against China. So I doubt that studios can really bend over backwards now without getting into trouble with American lawmakers. So what what next? Yeah, the balance has shifted. I think several years ago, studios that were censoring films or bowing to the demands of Chinese censors, I think they could get away with it being a little out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. And there'd be a story or two here or there about a scene that was cut or a line of dialogue that was cut and people would kind of forget it. And I don't think necessarily it's top of mind today, but it's clear that, especially since President Trump left office, that this is an issue that Democrats and Republicans are comfortable taking on. And it's become the rare sort of source of bipartisan skepticism when it comes to how the studios are operating in China. I think that they're very wary then of getting into those political crosshairs at home because of that backlash. And I think because that market access has been turned on and turned off so readily in the last couple of years, economically, they're trying to treat the market really just more like found money. And rather than saying, we're going to make this movie at X amount of dollars, expecting Y amount of dollars out of China, they're instead saying, well, let's make it for slightly less and just put a zero in the China column. And if we make $100 million out of China, all the better but we shouldn't be going in expecting that money or anticipating that money because it's become so unpredictable just on the political side and also on the the Chinese consumer side that it is not so much a guarantee anymore that if you release a big budget movie with a bunch of special effects, the Chinese audiences are just going to show up. Mm -hmm. And actually, on the Chinese side, do we see Chinese filmmakers and studios learning from Hollywood and becoming better at that game as well? Sure, they've been doing that for a long time, but now they're at a point where the budgets and the kind of special effects can begin to rival Hollywood movies in a film like Wandering Earth 2, for example. So I think that's the other kind of strategy that we need to acknowledge, which is that the Chinese government and the film bureaucrats have been talking about the idea of letting Hollywood films in as a way of challenging Chinese filmmakers to step up to the plate to match those production standards and so on, but with a view that eventually they might eclipse them and drive the Americans out of the Chinese market. So you can see that scenario as well as one that some people in China would like to play out. And it is a very difficult thing to know right now whether Chinese audiences have lost interest in American films and Hollywood films or just whether they're sort of on hiatus at the moment or whether it's more that rather than half the market going to these Hollywood imports, it might go down to a third or something like that. But we'll have to see how it goes. Chris and Eric, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast@spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening, and join us again next time. Bye.